Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 3. And I entitled this sermon, How to Destroy Your Marriage. And so I want to first talk to the wives or future wives, or those of you who have been wives or no wives, basically the ladies of the congregation. And I want to... I want you to imagine for a moment that you actually want to destroy your marriage and you actually want to be an ungodly spouse. Well, how, how do you do that? What do you need to do? Well, first of all, what you need to do is you need to remember that it's all about you. Okay? It's all about you. And you also, as a, as a spouse, as a wife, you need to um, help your husband understand that you can live without it. You know, that you're independent. You really don't, you really don't need him for anything. Uh, that's, that's important. Um, also, if you could just always pursue what you want, that'll go a long way in, in becoming an un- ungodly spouse. Now, there are also many ways you can manipulate your husband, though, to actually get what you want. And one way to do that is to actually pretend that you're doing something for him, for his good, but then use it for leverage later to actually get what you want. That's, that's a good tool to use. Another strategy that is very effective in destroying your marriage is to make your husband feel stupid. Um, and let me tell you how you can do that. One of the best ways to do that is to uh, correct him in public. When you're having a conversation, especially when it deals with like small, insignificant things, like whether the sign was blue or red. Like if you can just keep doing that, that'll really go a long way in destroying your marriage. Um, Because the point is, what you want to do by doing that is you want to establish the fact that you're the smarter one in the relationship. And so that that goes a long way in, in doing that. And and by doing that, this is a, it's a form of power. And the best way to destroy your marriage is to try to accumulate as much power as possible. And so that's, that's one way to do it. Also, here's another tool. If your husband does not go to church, uh, a great strategy is to try to make him feel terrible for not going to church. Like, keep talking to him about how horrible he is that he's not going to church. Now, if your husband does go to church, here's another tool you can use. If your husband does go to church, then what you need to do is listen to the sermon and you need to think about all the ways he needs to change and then make sure you tell him about it. Don't worry about listening to what you need to listen to or what God wants to do in your life. You just need to focus on what he needs to do and make sure he's very aware of what the pastor said that he needs to change in his life. Now, I want to broaden it just a little bit here and say another way you can, you can be an ungodly spouse and destroy your marriage is by making sure that you are valued by all those around you. And what that means is that your self-worth, and what you, you just need to realize this, your self-worth, if you, want to be, if you want to go a direction apart from God, your self-worth is completely tied to how people see you. And how people view you. So if people think you're beautiful, then everything will go well with you. That means you need to do whatever you can to have the latest hairstyle, the most expensive jewelry, 
and the most fashionable clothes. Because beauty is solely external. And don't worry about, you know, don't worry about your character uh, because your value is tied to your external beauty, not to how you treat other people. So you really just need to kind of just mainly focus on how you look. Now, in, in your marriage, though, make sure you know that your husband realizes that you're not trying to make yourself externally beautiful for him. That's not the point, right? Because you're trying to gain the value and, and the admiration of other people. So it's not for him. Make sure he knows that. Also, make sure that you don't submit or, or respect your husband. Because if you did that, then you're going to look weak and ignorant and tied to the past. So you don't want to go that route if you want to destroy your marriage. Also, if you want to destroy your marriage, uh, whatever you do, do not read the Bible. Okay? If you want to be an ungodly spouse, especially do not read 1 Peter 3, 1-6. Because if you do, you're going to see that Peter has a completely different idea of how husbands and wives should conduct themselves in a marriage relationship. You know, Peter actually, the Apostle Peter actually believes that God wants us to have godly marriages. And so, if you actually want to be a godly spouse, then these words are for you. Peter writes, beginning in verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And what Peter's doing is he is putting the marriage relationship in the context of other relationships that we've already looked at. He's putting the marriage relationship in the context of our relationships with our governmental leaders and our masters or those who have authority over us. And his exhortation is that wives should be subject to to their husbands, whether their husbands are Christians or not. And that's his primary focus, is that wives should be subject to their husbands, should submit to their husbands, even if they're not Christians. Which is a pretty strong statement. And he says this in uh, verse 1, he says, even if some of them, or some of the husbands, if, even if some do not obey the word. So here's the situation that Peter's writing to. You have a husband and you have a wife, who hear the gospel, the wife responds to the gospel and places her faith in Jesus Christ, and the husband refuses the gospel. And so the question is, what do you do now? Because in that, in that time period, the husband, the man had all the rights in the society, and so if they were to switch religions, what you would do is, they could just take the whole family, the husband would take the whole family to whatever that religion was, however they celebrated it, so if the husband became a Christian, he would just take his whole family to the church service, for example. But a wife didn't have the same rights. And so if she were to convert to Christianity, 
she couldn't take the whole family to the service, so to speak, or to gatherings with other Christians. So the question is, what do you do? As a wife who has placed her faith in Christ, do you leave your husband? Or what do you do? Well, Peter says no. What you do is, you actually submit to your husband. And perhaps even by doing that, he says in verse 1 and 2, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so in the context of this passage, there are two terms that I want to unpack that I think will help wives know how to be godly spouses. And then we'll get to the husbands in a moment. The two terms are these. The first term is the word subject or to submit. I want to talk about what that is, what that is not. And the second word is the word conduct. Let's start with the word submit. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, I think to start with, it might be easier to say what it does not mean. Submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. And I'm getting some of, this, some of these points from a great book that's called Re- Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's a great book that deals with a lot of these different issues. So the first one is, submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. And if you remember, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we relate to the government, as we relate to those over us, he says we need to do this for the Lord's sake. In other words, Christ is our greater authority, and these are our lesser authorities. And so we must always be first obedient. Our first allegiance should always be to Christ. And so submission does not mean putting the husband in the place of Christ. Submission does not mean giving up independent thought. And we see this in the passage because he's writing the wife and he's saying, okay, you have independently placed your faith in Christ. Your husband has not. He's not telling her not to do that. He's simply telling her this is how you live out your faith in this context. So clearly he's not saying that you need to give up independent thought. Submission does not mean a wife should give up efforts to influence and guide her husband. That's not what submission means. Because this passage, again, what is Peter trying to say? He's saying, actually, your husband has heard the gospel, and perhaps by your conduct, you may influence him to become a Christian. And so he's not saying that you should not try to influence or guide your husband. Submission does not mean a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. This is not some type of dictatorship. You know, we've already talked about this. You have a greater authority in Christ and you have lesser authorities all around you. The government, your employer, wives, your husbands. And so we submit to those authorities unless we are commanded to sin. And then obviously our allegiance is primarily to Christ and we cannot follow them in that. We talked about several examples uh, last week where that was the case, even in Scripture where we saw people... uh, not obeying the authority over them so that they can obey God and His commands. Submission is not based on lesser intelligence or competence. Just because you are to submit to your husband doesn't mean that you're less intelligent or competent. If anything, Peter's saying in here, the wife seems to be more spiritually competent in the sense that she's the one who trusted Christ. 
She has more spiritual competence than her husband. And yet, he still tells her, submit to your husband. And so it does not mean that the wife has a lesser intelligence or competence. Uh, Submission does not mean being fearful or timid. In verse 6, Peter says, do not fear anything that is frightening. So you're not doing this out of fear of your husband, but rather you're doing this because this is the way God has ordered the family. Verse, I mean, number seven, uh, submission is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. Just because you submit to someone doesn't mean that you're not equal to that person in dignity and importance. For example, look at Jesus. Look, think about all the people Jesus submitted to. I mean, he submitted to his parents. He submitted to Pilate. He submitted to God the Father. But that doesn't mean that he's not equal or important. And in some cases, perhaps even more important than some of those folks. So now, what does, what does submission mean? What does it mean to be subject to your husband? Well, first, we see here Peter saying that there is this inner quality of gentleness. And so submission is this, it's an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. And this gentleness I'm talking about here, and I think what Peter's saying is, it's this... Uh, It's not insisting on your rights. And we've seen this as it relates to the government, as it relates to your employer or whoever has authority over you in the workplace. It's not insisting on your rights. It's not being pushy and selfishly assertive. It's not demanding one's own way all the time. Having a little trouble with this little... I feel like I'm in a fast food restaurant taking orders in the line with this thing on my ear. I'm not doing a very good job of it. So submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. Second, submission involves obedience like Sarah's. It's a voluntary selflessness. We all know this. If you've been married, you know this, that there's not always going to be consensus. You know, believe it or not, you know, when Celia and I have a conversation, we don't always agree. So what do you do with that? Well, if it's dealing with an area that is not you know, sinful or not sinful, you know, so you just have to trust my judgment on that and follow me in the decision I make. There, there cannot always be consensus. If there, if there can, that's great. You want to gain consensus, but sometimes there's just not going to be consensus and somebody has to make the decision and somebody has to be held accountable. And that will be the husband. And submission acknowledges, kind of going with that one, submission acknowledges an authority that is not totally mutual. In other words, in God's design of the family, there's a role for the husband, there's a role for the wife, there's a role for the children, and they're not all the same. You can't just interplace people in those different roles, but God has a plan for each of them. So that's what the idea of submission means. Now let's look at the word Conduct, Because Peter puts a lot of emphasis on conduct in this passage. So what does he mean by your conduct? Well, he goes into great detail in verses 1 through 6. And he says that your conduct should point your husband to Christ. Now this could be true. I think even if you're a spouse, uh, even if your husband is a Christian, I still think you should think of it this way. That Does my conduct point him to Christ, even still, even though he knows Christ. 
You know, in the 4th and 5th century, there was a a well-known theologian named Augustine. And Augustine came to Christ late in life. And what really paved the way for Augustine to place his faith in Christ was the conduct of his mother. Listen to what he writes. He's actually writing this to a prayer, in a prayer to Jesus. Listen to his recollection as he reflects on his mother's life. He says, She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you. Speaking to Jesus. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his his earthly span, she gained him for you. You know, Augustine's mother was beautiful as the Lord sees beauty. And her, not just her words, but her conduct, how she carried herself, paved the way for her son's salvation as well as her husband's. And Peter gives us a proper concept of this beauty that Augustine's mother had in verses 3 and 4. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. So what he's saying here is he's emphasizing that you should be more concerned with your internal beauty than your external beauty. You, know, you should be more concerned with the beauty of your conduct than your beauty of appearance. So is he saying that you should not be concerned about your external appearance? Appearance. Is he saying that, you know, Christian women should be the ugliest women? <laughs> I don't think he is. Because you may say, well, you know, he is saying that you shouldn't braid your hair, you shouldn't wear gold jewelry, you shouldn't wear clothing. Hold on a second. You know, this reminds me of a quote by Mark Twain when he said, Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't think he's saying, he's not saying, okay, don't wear clothing. Obviously, he's not saying that. But what he is saying is he's saying, okay, your external adornment, your, how you do your hair, what jewelry you do wear, what clothing you do wear needs to be consistent with the type of person you are becoming. In other words, you want your external adornment, how you present yourself to the world visibly, to reflect what you value internally, your character. And this will require biblical discernment and cultural awareness. Now let me ask you a question, ladies. How much time... Do you spend every day on your external beauty versus your internal beauty? Now, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to give up one for the other. You know, you may say, well, is Ron telling me I can't fix my hair anymore? You know, is that, is that what he's... No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that perhaps there may be some ways to implement both. Generally speaking, we all know it usually takes ladies a little longer to get ready in the morning than it does us men, right? And that's okay. 
But perhaps there are some ways we can incorporate both the external and the internal adorning together. For example, when you're putting on your makeup, maybe you could post a couple scripture verses on your mirror that you can meditate on throughout the day. Or maybe when you're blow drying your hair, that that's a, that's a prompt to be in prayer about some prayer requests that are on your mind and on your heart that you've, you've told people to pray for. Or maybe while you're picking out your clothes, I've heard that this could take a little while to pick out clothing. So maybe what you can do is play some worship music, a song or two or three or four or five while you're picking out your clothes. You know, try to combine some of these things. But the point is, don't let the culture dictate to you what is beautiful. That's the point he's making. Don't find your value and your worth in what your city, the city of Augusta tells you is beautiful. Because if you let that happen, you'll be chasing a perishable crown. You're going to be chasing a beauty that will fade. What is precious to God, and this is what Peter says, what is precious to God is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's becoming that godly woman. It's the character. It's that Christ-likeness that God is working in you. That is, it's imperishable. It's eternal. You'll never lose it. And that's what you need to pursue. Is this the woman you desire to be? So we see with the women, the wives, be subject to your husbands. Not just, you know, don't just be submissive, but be beautiful. Pursue the beauty that is godliness. And perhaps your conduct will even win your husband to Christ. Without a word. Now let me turn my attention to the husbands. So, husbands, how do you how do you destroy your marriage? What if you want to be the ungodly spouse? What do you need to do? Well, very similar to the ungodly wife, what you need to do is remember it's all about you, actually. It's all about you. Don't seek to understand your wife. Okay? Don't seek to understand what her needs are, what her wants are. You know, use your privileged position in society to get the upper hand. You know, you need to, another tool you could use here is you need to try to criticize how she's different than you. For example, you can tell her that, you know, she's too emotional or she talks too much or she's too concerned about how she looks. In other words, what you want to do is you want to find some qualities that are feminine, that are directly related to women, and you want to try to Put those down. And if your wife is a Christian, then you can just keep reminding her that she should submit to you. And this is particularly helpful if you want to be an ungodly spouse. This is particularly helpful if you're having an argument or if she's trying to correct you or point out a a character flaw in you. You know, playing that submit card is, is helpful if your wife's a Christian. Now, again, if you want to destroy your marriage, whatever you do, Don't read the Bible. And especially if you want to be a godly husband, don't pay attention to 1 Peter 3 verse 7 which reads, Likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
So if you want to be a godly husband, the first thing that Peter says is that you need to live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, you need to live with your wife as it pertains to knowledge. You need to know your wife. You need to know what she likes. You need to know what encourages her and what hurts her. You need to know who she is, who she wants to be. And this takes effort and this takes intentionality. And guys, we were good at this when we first started dating, right? We were very interested in what they wanted and what they liked and what they didn't. But what we tend to do, though, is we tend to get in a routine and we tend to put too much stock in our past knowledge instead of continually knowing our wives and learning about our wives. Because guess what? People don't stay the same. We change in a number of different ways. And so we need to continually be learners, guys, if we want to be godly husbands. Peter goes on to say that a godly husband must honor his wife. And he's used this term before. He's told us to honor the government. He's told us to honor everyone. And now he tells us to honor our wives. He tells us to respect the way that God has made them. Because believe it or not, he's actually made them a little bit different than he's made us. That's why they're wives. And we're husbands. They're women. We're men. He tells them to, he tells the husband to honor them as a weaker vessel. Now, what does he mean by that? This weaker vessel. Well, I think he could mean simply that, generally speaking, women tend to be physically weaker than men. He could be talking about that. And therefore, the husband needs to recognize and respect that fact. He could also be referring to her weaker position in the marriage, so to speak. In other words, the, the husband is to lead, the wife is to submit. And so there could be an, an idea, okay, you have the weaker position, so you need to honor her and respect her in the position God has her in. Others say that Peter may be referring to her sensitivity. You know, whatever the term in, includes... The charge to the husband is to honor her, honor how she's made, honor the differences, honor her position in the marriage. And lastly, Peter makes a startling statement at the end of verse seven. Did you catch this when Adam read the scripture earlier? Husbands, it'll definitely make you have a double take. He says, honor your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. So the way, the way a husband lives with his wife affects the effectiveness of his prayers. In other words, how a husband treats his wife affects his relationship to God. And simply put, Peter's saying, if you mistreat your wife, your prayers will be hindered. That will be a form of discipline that God extends to you. He will not hear and answer your prayer. Now, when we look at husbands and wives and the roles that they have, we think about how, how, can, we, how can we live this out? How can we live this way? And I think the only way we can live out this ideal is if we have been entrusted, if we've entrusted ourselves to God. The only way for us to be godly spouses is if we have been born again to a living hope. The only way for us to be 
godly spouses and live out these roles is if you are secure in Christ. And what I mean by that is, if your identity is associated with what God says about you, rather than what the world says about you, or rather than what the, your, even your spouse says about you, then you are free to be a godly spouse. Because your behavior, your conduct is flowing out of your relationship with Christ, not what you're trying to get from the world or get from your spouse, you see. You know, this type of leadership, this type of submission, this type of understanding, this type of honor, this type of beauty, can only pour forth from the grace-filled, forgiveness-filled, mercy-filled, love-filled reservoir of Christ. If you are not connected to Christ, then Peter's words here will be sifted by your desire to be first. They will be sifted by your desire to be independent. They will be sifted by your desire to have things your way. And what you will be left with is a marital relational shell that is void of godliness. Your marriage only has the potential to be filled with godliness if and only if you submit your life to Christ. You can't do it without Him. So Peter's exhortation in this section of his letter is that only by being mindful of God can you be a good citizen, can you serve well, And can you be a good godly husband or wife? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and how it stands, even as the cultures come and go. Lord, we recognize that your word states truths that are contrary to our culture. And Lord, we are challenged by what you say in your word. And I ask just by your Holy Spirit that you would give us a hunger to know your word. A desire to not be like our culture, but rather to be like Christ. Give us insight into what your word means so that we can live it out by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak into the lives of husbands and wives, even even now. And show them areas where they need to trust you. And give over to you and live out by their faith in Christ in alignment with your word. Lord, I pray for those who have experienced ungodly spouses. I pray for those who have gone through divorce. We're thankful that your mercy is new every morning. And you are completely sufficient to bring healing and strength and endurance even in those situations. And we are thankful that no matter what our position is, married, unmarried, divorced, husband, wife, child, that we are all equal in your sight. We are co-heirs with Christ. We all have access to, to you through your son. And your requirement has been made through the death of Christ and his resurrection. And it is complete. And we are so thankful for that, God. 
Lord, would you lead us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.